Good morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk and chapter 1. The book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. Habakkuk is not the name of a Tolkien character, uh, nor is it a book from the Apocrypha. It's a book of the Bible, uh, one of the group of books known to us as the Minor Prophets, uh, not because they're minor in terms of importance, uh, but because uh, they're small uh, in size. Uh, so Habakkuk would be uh, four or five books from your New Testament. So if you turn to Matthew, make a left back about five books, you'll arrive at Habakkuk. Uh, today we're beginning a new series. Last week we finished our series in the Gospel of John, and today we begin a new series in Habakkuk, albeit a short series of about four or five messages, God willing. Uh, to begin this message, I want to ask you to use your imagination this morning and imagine a world very different than, than the one we inhabit, at least as citizens of the United States of America. Uh, imagine a world, if you would, uh, in which the so-called inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not honored. Uh, imagine a world uh, in which power and position are not earned, but simply taken by the strongest members of society. Imagine a world in which judges and magistrates take bribes for their ruling, essentially justice to the highest bidder. Imagine a world in which property rights are unprotected, where your goods or possessions can be stolen with no hope of recourse or restitution. A world in which you could be mugged or assaulted or attacked. Though you cry out for the police or somebody nearby, everyone just passes by without giving you any notice. A world in which 911 doesn't answer. A world in which the police turn a blind eye and courts of law sanction widespread injustice. This dystopia you've imagined is probably not far off from the state of the southern kingdom of Judah on the eve of what we call the Babylonian captivity, which is when the book of Habakkuk was written. So allow me here in the first several minutes to provide some background to the book of Habakkuk and open up some of the major themes of the book. Uh, you must remember uh, in the history of Israel that after King David and after King Solomon, God's people, Israel, were divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom, often simply referred to as the kingdom of Israel, uh, represented uh, ten of the tribes. And in roughly 722 BC, the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, the kingdom of Israel, fell to the Assyrians. Then you have the southern kingdom, which is made up of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. It's often simply referred to as the kingdom of Judah. Uh, would not fall itself until roughly 587 BC. So about 150 years later. And they would fall to the Babylonians. So the northern kingdom falls 722 BC to Syria, the southern kingdom to Babylon, or sometimes referred to as the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, same people. That southern kingdom, Judah, would fall in 587 BC. Now Habakkuk the prophet, who lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, lived in the middle of these two events. So he's sandwiched between the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, 722 BC, that's in the past when Habakkuk is written, and then he's looking forward, looking ahead to the fall of Judah to 
Babylon or the Chaldeans in 587 BC. So the southern kingdom Judah is not yet in captivity when Habakkuk is written, but there's this ever-present threat that they too could fall. However, though Judah has not yet fallen as a kingdom to the Babylonians, they have already declined morally. The southern kingdom of Judah was marked by injustice and lawlessness, by wickedness and by rebellion against Yahweh. And Habakkuk is writing in the context of an evil age in Judah's history prior to their fall to Babylon. So he's writing just a few decades prior to the Babylonian captivity. Think roughly 620, 610 BC, somewhere in that era. Let me just highlight a few interesting features of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one of the few prophets who doesn't actually address the nation of Israel. He never speaks to God's covenant people. The book of Habakkuk is a record of Habakkuk's dialogue with God himself. Habakkuk's words come to us in the form of something like a lament or a complaint to God. And I don't mean by complaint, think in terms of like how you might make a complaint to a magistrate on a matter of justice or something like that. It's not like Habakkuk is just whining before the Lord, complaining before the Lord. It's a lament, it's a plea that Habakkuk is making to God. He's really just voicing, I think, the legitimate internal wrestlings of his own heart in prayer and lament to God. So, so here's the basic structure of the book, three basic parts. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, you have Habakkuk's first lament, his first complaint, and God's response. And then from Habakkuk 1, verse 12, on through chapter 2, verse 20, you have Habakkuk's second complaint or lament. So, so, so he spoke at once, God responded, now he speaks again, a second complaint or lament. And God then responds. And then chapter 3, from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, you have what could be called variously Habakkuk's prayer or Habakkuk's psalm or Habakkuk's hymn, which is sort of the conclusion of the book. So there's this back and forth between Habakkuk and God this dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord that sort of controls the momentum of the book and pushes the narrative forward. And, and as it is, this back and forth between Habakkuk and God, uh, the narrative is, is very raw and, and deeply personal. It represents essentially Habakkuk's crisis of faith. Uh, he is struggling to trust the goodness and the sovereignty of God in the face of, number one, the unrighteousness and lawlessness of Judah, his homeland, his people. Number two, the coming judgment of God upon Judah by way of the Babylonians who are more wicked, more lawless than Judah itself. Habakkuk is struggling to trust God in the face of such providences, such evil and such apparent injustice, especially in light of God's apparent inaction. What Habakkuk perceives is God's lack of interest and care for himself, Habakkuk, and the people of Judah. Furthermore, Habakkuk is also struggling to find joy in the Lord. He needs to have his joy in the Lord restored. His soul's in anguish. Habakkuk looks at the world, and he looks at God, and he looks at himself, and he's deeply unsettled, he's distressed, and even disturbed. At this point, I'd just like to Take a moment and address anyone who might be watching this, and, and you know in your heart, your mind, you're not a Christian. You don't profess to be 
a Christian, or maybe someone passed this link onto you, uh, sent this video to you, or somehow you found our website and thought you would log on this morning and, and, and watch this message. Well, I just want to ask you, my, my unbelieving friend, my, my non-Christian friend, can you sympathize with Habakkuk at all at this point? I'm not talking about what he says later on in the book, just at this point. As he looks at the world and contemplates God and his own situation and feels distressed and discouraged at what he's seeing going on around him, let me ask my friend, how would you say things are going? Habakkuk looks at the world and says things are not as they should be. He looks at the world and sees all the injustice and all the evil, and he says, essentially, something's got to give. Do you look at the world that way? And, and, and my friend, what solution have you found for all the evils in the world? In, in your perspective, your worldview, is it all just one big mess and, and one big nothing with no way out? Have you arrived at a solution not only for like cosmic injustice, but like, like the 10 million sort of micro injustices that mark all of our lives, that affect all of our lives. What about your own sins? And the ways in which you, my friend, have contributed to the evils and injustices of the world. Have you found any solution for your sin problem? What Habakkuk will learn in this book is that God, the God of the Bible, is not indifferent to injustice and evil. He is the solution to injustice and evil. God will not tolerate wrongdoing, even if it seems for a time as though he is. Every wrong will be righted by God. Nothing will escape his gaze. His justice will never be perverted. He is perfectly good, perfectly holy, and perfectly just, and he will one day set all things right. He will address all sin and all injustice in the world. So I ask my friend, are you prepared to face the justice of God? Of course, those who are in Christ are, are happily and gloriously rendered forgiven and even righteous, even just, not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to satisfy God's own justice. But what about you, my friend? who find yourself outside the salvation that Christ offers. But at this point, at the start of the book, Habakkuk doesn't appreciate God's perspective and what God is doing, at least not at the beginning. Habakkuk, for his part, is having something of a crisis of faith. And in many ways, you could think of Habakkuk, if you're familiar with the Bible and the Old Testament, you could think of Habakkuk as sort of like a mini version of Job. It's not a perfect comparison, but there's a great deal of overlap between the two books. Uh, he, like Job, finds the world and his present circumstances and God's ways, frankly, confounding. I mean, Job is watching all that's going on around him. He just, he's confounded. He doesn't understand the ways of God. Habakkuk's in the same situation. And, and Habakkuk, like Job, is seeking answers in a very direct and open and raw sort of way before the Lord. And he, like Job, allows his doubts and questions Find a voice through what we could call lament. Well, this is the context. Habakkuk's crisis of faith, struggling with the injustices he sees in the world and God's apparent inattention to those evils. 
This is the context in which the major themes of the book emerge. So I'll just list some of the major themes of the book, some of the things we'll consider over the next several weeks. Uh, Human suffering, God's sovereignty, the problem of evil, uh, God's attributes of wrath and justice, the mystery of God's providence, the priority of faith, the goodness and mercy of God, and God's redemptive purposes in all things. I'll just say, my friend, I wonder... Do any of these themes sound especially relevant to us in our own day? I'm not just talking about things going on globally or nationally. Even in your own life, I wonder if these themes seem relevant to you. But what about the main purpose of the book? What is it that Habakkuk is designed to teach us? Where is this all heading? What's the climactic truth the book brings to bear on our lives? And I'll show you this in the book itself just so you know where we're heading with all of this. The main conclusion or the theme of the book is summarized in two places in Habakkuk. So we're going to return to these verses again and again over the next four or five weeks. The first time the main purpose appears is in the words of God himself, and the second time is in the words of Habakkuk. The first is actually probably the most well-known verse in all of Habakkuk. It's Habakkuk 2, verse 4, quoted three times in the New Testament in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. I'm talking about that little phrase in Habakkuk 2.4, the second half of the verse, the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by his faith. And that's indeed the name we've given to this series, the righteous shall live by faith. The second place in which the major message of the book comes to us is in Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. You can just listen as I read, or you can turn there if you'd like. Habakkuk says this in the final verses of the book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's a stunning conclusion. And we may be wondering, in light of some of the problems facing Habakkuk, how did he arrive at such a conclusion, such a place of resolution? So to answer that question, let me ask you turn now to Habakkuk 1. This morning, in this message, we'll consider, in the time that remains, verses 1 through 11 of Habakkuk 1. First, let's read the first four verses. Habakkuk 1, verse 1. The oracle, or the burden, depending on the translation you're using. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. I have three basic headings that we'll use to work through Habakkuk 1, uh, verse 1 through 11. The first is Habakkuk's lament. Secondly, God's response. Thirdly, lessons for us. Please look, at me, look with me first at Habakkuk's lament. His lament is contained in these first four verses. 
Verse 1, the oracle, the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So from the very beginning, we're told that Habakkuk is going to unload his burden. This is not Habakkuk speaking to the nation of Israel. Habakkuk's engaging directly with God. And the subject matter, that engagement, is Habakkuk's burden, his struggle, what it is Habakkuk is wrestling with, the oracle of Habakkuk the prophet. Well, what is the essence of Habakkuk's burden, his lament, his complaint? Remember, he's living in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which has not yet been overrun by the Babylonians. However, as Habakkuk takes the spiritual pulse of the kingdom of Judah, so to speak, he realizes the kingdom's moral health is in steep decline. The nation has all but totally rejected Yahweh. And so Habakkuk is crying out to God to do something to address Judah's sins, and he feels like he's not being heard at all. Habakkuk wants Judah to be addressed for their wrongdoing, their injustice, but he feels God is paying no attention whatsoever. So he says, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? My friend, maybe you could imagine being in a crisis situation, a, a legitimate emergency and uh, calling 911. Maybe you've had to do that before. And God's kindness to me, I've only ever been in that situation a few times. And uh, you can imagine calling 911, um, but 911 doesn't answer the call. So, so we depend on 911 answering the phone, right? It's the only phone number that will always answer. But could you imagine being in a real crisis, a real emergency, and then calling 911 and just getting a busy tone? or just a perpetual ringing and that sinking feeling in your heart that that help you so desperately and urgently need is not coming. I can remember when, when I was a child, in the middle of the night, our house caught fire. Very scary experience. And as the fire spread to more and more rooms, calling 911, and, and every minute that the fire department was not there, we're seeing more of the house go up in flames. And how terrifying that was. But then they finally came and there was such relief that help had come. Uh, you could imagine, uh, even in, in our day today, what's going on with the coronavirus pandemic. We've seen this in Italy. There's fear that this could happen if the virus continues to spread to a great degree. Uh, some experts are talking about hospitals being overrun and people actually coming to the emergency room with an emergency and being turned away. Can you imagine that? Being in a car wreck or something uh, or, or having shortness of breath at home and you feel you might be going into cardiac arrest or something and arriving at the emergency room and them saying, we don't have room for you. We can't help you. That sense of the urgency of need and yet, no help is going to come. That's the idea here, I think. Habakkuk cries to God, this, this urgent plea. He says, violence. It's like he's calling out, somebody help me. Violence, I'm being attacked. The plea is urgent and imminent. And in the midst of this cry for help, Habakkuk essentially says, God, it's like you're not even there. It's like you're not picking up. It's like you're turning away my urgent cry. Brother, sister, how often have you cried out to God in your hour of what you felt to be urgent need and sensed nothing from him but silence and cold indifference? One writer famously described his own feelings after losing his wife to an awful battle with cancer 
and then seeking to find God to make sense of it all. He said this, quote, you go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? My friend, that writer was not an atheist. That writer, you may know, was C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer and apologist. My friend, Christianity is not for fakers. It isn't for people who just pretend everything's all right. We're not just a happy, clappy band of of glib, obnoxious Pollyannas. No, we suffer, we feel, we lament, we grieve. And sometimes we do so with the added torment that God seems far off. This is Habakkuk. Everything is falling apart. Judah is forsaking God. Evil and injustice prevail. And he says, I cry for help and God doesn't hear. I cry violence and he doesn't come to save. He goes on in verse 3 and says, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? All around him, Habakkuk sees evil flagrantly and decadently displayed. And what's more, he suggests that God looks idly at the same scenes. Like, like Habakkuk doesn't doubt the Lord sees, just not doing anything about it. Habakkuk is trying to provoke and stir up God's holiness and justice to act and to bring an end to such evil displays. He says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Verse 4. So the law, the Torah, is paralyzed. Translated variously, uh, the law lacks power. The law is slacked. The law is halted. That language in the ESV, the law is paralyzed, is especially powerful language. And you might wonder, what does Habakkuk mean by that? The law is paralyzed in observance. Well, that would certainly be true. Uh, That is, uh, people are not observing the law. They're not obeying the law. But probably what he means, this is something far worse. The law is paralyzed in terms of enforcement. You see the difference? It's one thing for people to break the law and then be punished. It's another thing for those responsible to administer the law not to enforce the law. The law is paralyzed in terms of enforcement. It has no power. It's not acting. It's not doing what it was meant to do. The law is paralyzed. Well, the paralysis of law, my friend, means anarchy. It means lawlessness. And friends, lawlessness is one of the very worst things that can befall a nation. We should pray against lawlessness in our own land and every other land. There's nothing worse than lawlessness in a nation. And I would say even more, there is nothing worse that can befall a human heart than lawlessness. A disregard for law. We should fear lawlessness. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Well, first he says in verse 4, justice never goes forth. Then he says two lines later, justice goes forth perverted. Is that a contradiction in terms? Not at all. Because you know, right, that perverted justice is in essence injustice. So on the one hand, he says 
good, God-honoring, holy, righteous, biblical justice doesn't go forth, doesn't prevail, it's nowhere to be found. Rather, it's this, this fake justice, this sham justice, this perverted justice that in itself is injustice and lawlessness. This is what's going forth among your people. Well, to summarize Habakkuk's lament, it's essentially this. Judah is overrun with wickedness and with unrighteousness. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and all of this is apparently being tolerated, even endorsed, by Judah's corrupt leaders. And what is worst of all for Habakkuk is that he's crying out to God to intervene and do something, and God seems silent. And he's prone to ask, does God see Does God tolerate injustice? Does he care about the evil that goes on in the world? Is he even aware? It's like Lewis said, all the lights are off in the house, and that question arises, was this house ever inhabited? Has God ever been there? Well, now consider with me, secondly, God's response. We've seen Habakkuk's lament. Now, secondly, God's response. And there's three things to note about God's response here. The first is this. God has always been watching and is in total control. God has always been watching and is in total control. We learn in God's words to Habakkuk in verses uh, 5 through 11 that God is perfectly aware of sin and injustice. Habakkuk's lament doesn't represent some kind of revelation to God. It's not like God was roused and woken up and, oh, I didn't know that was going on in Judah. Moreover, God is not dead. He is not sleeping. He doesn't have his hands over his eyes. Nothing escapes his gaze. He knows all things. He knows Judah thoroughly and completely. What's more, God is in complete control of events. He is totally sovereign. Though Judah defies God by their lawlessness, God's sovereignty and providence will ultimately direct events and bring forth judgment upon Judah in God's perfect timing. None of this is surprising to God. None of this is news to him. Brother, sister, God never says, uh, well, I didn't see that coming. Or who knew? He never says, oops. No, friends, God is reminding Habakkuk that though it feels as though he is far off, though it seems that he is not sovereign and not working, he is actually very near. And though it seems that he is inattentive, he is actually orchestrating every detail. He sees everything, he knows everything, and he is in total control and he is working out his purposes. Second thing to notice about God's response. He's always watching and is in total control. Secondly, God knows his plans and purposes will confound Habakkuk, and that's just fine. He knows his plans and purposes will confound Habakkuk, and that's just fine. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. God says, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Though God will reveal that he is indeed raising up the Chaldeans, that's the the Babylonians, 
Though he will reveal that he is indeed raising up the Babylonians to bring about judgment on Judah, he does not expect that this mode of acting will make any sense to Habakkuk. Moreover, he doesn't seem too concerned about it. He essentially says, Habakkuk, I'm doing something in all of this you couldn't possibly comprehend. Even if I told you, even if I gave you the detailed plan of what I'm doing in all of this, you wouldn't understand it. Like many of you, uh, I did my taxes recently. Jenna and I, every year, do them together, a few hours. We just try to knock it out all in one sitting. Maybe some of you are taking advantage of the extension now that we've been given on doing our taxes. But Jenna and I did our taxes a few weeks ago. And um, we decided to do them at, at kind of an inopportune time. We did them uh, sort of in the middle of the afternoon, shortly after the kids' bedtime, or excuse me, nap time. And I don't know why we thought that was a good idea. But, but I'm on the computer, and Jen, Jen is consulting you know, our paperwork and our files and all that, and I'm typing in things on our little tax app. And um, Dom is sitting there in just the most excruciating boredom, boredom you could imagine. Uh, he is just, just couldn't be more bored watching us do this. And it's odd for him because normally dad being home in the late afternoon, early evening means it's playtime, but here I am trying to knock out the taxes. And he's asking me to go outside, to go outside, to go outside. And I'm telling him, nobody. I I can't go outside with you. Now, now, the message that I needed to communicate to Dom was, no, son, not now. We're not going outside. Would it have meant anything to him at all for me to say, Dom, what I'm doing is uh, I'm filling out the exemption portion of mommy and daddy's federal income taxes. We need to get these in to meet the April 15th deadline. It just would have been lost on him. It wouldn't have meant anything to him at all. He has no comprehension of what taxes are. He has no comprehension of what income is. He has no comprehension of, 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 of what it means to file your W-2s and your exemptions. It, it's incoherent to him. Now, now, now here's, here's, here's the illustration. What is greater, the scale of difference between me and my son in terms of both intelligence, experience, competence, which is greater, the scale of difference between me and my son, two-year-old son Dominic, or the scale of difference between God and you and me, or God and Habakkuk? God is in essence saying, look, I could explain this to you, but you wouldn't believe it even if I told you. Even if I gave you the details of what I'm orchestrating, you'd be lost on you, Habakkuk, because you are but a man. I'm doing something you wouldn't believe if told. God is not here to provide an explanation to Habakkuk for all his plans and purposes. He is here simply to announce what he's going to do immediately. And rather than give Habakkuk an explanation or an answer to all his questions, God has something greater in view. God wants eventually to bring Habakkuk to a place of faith and trust in him. Not by answering all his questions, but in spite of all his unanswered questions. You see that, right? The, the solution is not to give Habakkuk all the answers to his satisfaction of why God's providence has taken the peculiar course that it has taken. God is much more interested in Habakkuk's faith and more interested in his faith than he is his approval. He's more concerned that Habakkuk trusts in him 
than he is in seeking to make a compelling case to justify his divine purposes. Brother, sister, God will maintain his own divine discretion. There are things we have no right to look into. There are answers we are not permitted to have. He will keep his own divine counsel. He will maintain, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, that the secret things belong to the Lord. He will maintain, as Job 11 says, that no one can find out the deep things of God. No one will ever find out the limit of the Almighty. He will maintain that his judgments are unsearchable and his ways inscrutable. Romans eleven thirty three. No, God is not going to pander to Habakkuk. He's not going to allow himself to be examined or scrutinized by a mere man. He says, I am doing something, and it's something you wouldn't even believe or understand if I told you. Now, now I'll just say at this point, you know this. It's not as though God has something to hide. As if, if God went ahead and gave us the full reveal, we'd learn all of a sudden, oh, he's not really good. Oh, he's not really sovereign. Oh, he's not really loving and caring God. A God worth trusting. No, no, no. The point is that God, while keeping his own divine counsel, while maintaining his own mysterious providence, wants to bring Habakkuk to a place of faith in him. Not because Habakkuk got every one of his questions and queries answered and every problem fixed in his life. Friends, that's very close to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I'll have faith in you, God, as long as you give me answers to every one of my speculations about your providence and what you're doing in the world. You fix all my problems, we're good. That's health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Rather, God wants Habakkuk to trust him because he knows and believes that God is good and will do right even if it doesn't presently appear so. God wants Habakkuk to trust him even with his unanswered questions and in the midst of his difficult circumstances. Well, now the third and final thing I'd like to ask you to notice about God's response. Third and finally, God announces that he will use the evil nation Babylon to exact judgment on Judah. This is what God does reveal. God announces that he will use the evil nation Babylon, the Chaldeans, to exact judgment on Judah. God announces that he has seen the wickedness of Judah the perverted justice, the sham injustice, excuse me, the sham justice that has gone forward. And he is going to judge them by raising up an evil nation to conquer them and bring them into captivity, which is not the response Habakkuk was hoping for. I, I think the way the dialogue goes is, God, do you see the injustice of your people? Do you see their wickedness? Are you going to do something about it? God says, yes, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to judge them. And Habakkuk, we will see next time, Response, the Babylonians. Really? Could that be your solution? They're worse than Judah. But here God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Look at verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press loudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. Remember, Habakkuk's complaint was that he saw violence and God wasn't doing anything. Now God is bringing upon Judah the Babylonian nation. We read in verse 9, all come for violence. 
All their faces forward, they gather, gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. The text speaks for itself, but I will make just one comment. Brother, sister, make sure your theology has room for Habakkuk 1, verse 6. Make sure your theology has room for Habakkuk 1, verse 6, where God says, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I, God, the holy God, the righteous God, the good God, the sovereign God, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. My friend, is God sovereign even over evil? And more than that, does he use evil people and evil nations to accomplish his purposes? You have to accept this about God. God raised up Pharaoh. God used the sinfulness of Joseph's brothers. God raised up the Babylonians. What's more, God appointed Judas to betray the Lord. God blinded the eyes of the Jews so that they would put Jesus to death on the cross so that salvation could come to the world. And in our day, let's just stretch this logic out a little bit, the implications of the logic. God raises up Hitler and Stalin and Hussein, and bin Laden, and President Xi. Though he does not create evil, God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. And he'll not just do that in the sense of raising up nations, the sort of evil providences that come into our lives. He'll use a bodily affliction, the abandonment of a spouse, some form of abuse or oppression, a global crisis. He is pleased to use these things to accomplish his purposes. These things will become his instruments in advancing his sovereign purposes. Now listen, I'm aware that's a very hard doctrine to swallow. But my friend, as we say often, we're Bible people. And we will have the God of the Bible or we will have no God at all. We must wrestle with this doctrine as Habakkuk does in this book. Make room in your theology for verse 6. Make room in your theology for a God who ordains the coronavirus and who determines the extent to which it will spread. Brother, sister, he is over every lost life, every lost job, every lost dollar. He's sovereign over all. And I cannot tell you as a pastor and a preacher, why God in his sovereignty has brought this or any other calamity upon us and upon our world. But I can tell you this, on the sure foundation of God's word, he is using it as he does every wicked thing to advance his purposes and his plans. And for some, I dare not presume whom, but for some it will mean judgment. For others it will mean salvation. And for God, it will mean everlasting glory. Now consider with me thirdly and finally and in closing, briefly a few lessons 
for us. Habakkuk's lament, God's response. Thirdly and finally, what lessons can we learn from Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 11? Number one, in the midst of the suffering and confusion brought about by God's mysterious providence, we are allowed to struggle. In the midst of the suffering and the confusion brought about by God's mysterious providence, we are allowed, we are permitted to struggle. When you examine human interaction with God in the Bible, like the interaction between God's saints and God himself, I'm thinking of prayers, laments, psalms. What I find so striking about them is how painfully honest they are. There's a certain freedom of expression that's set forth in the Bible and in the prayers of the saints throughout the life of God's people. And in most cases, God seems to not only tolerate it, but even to invite it. My friend, you can unburden your heart to God and let him know how you are feeling in light of the confusion and real difficulty his providence brings about in your life and in the lives of others. He already knows. It's not like we can hide our innermost feelings from him or reveal something new to him. He permits us, allows us, even invites us to unburden ourselves. So listen, it's okay to ask God why. It's okay to say, God, where are you? It's okay to say, God, it seems to me like you're silent and far off. It's okay to say to God, I don't like this situation. I don't like this trial, and I want this to change. Of course, we should never accuse God of wrongdoing or evil. That would be blasphemy. It would be to invite God's own just judgment upon us. Moreover, we should never allow our lament to become license for unbelief and sin, but still, we can tell him what his providence looks like to us and how it impacts us from our standpoint of human finitude and frailty. If God's ways confound us, that is, perplex us, confuse us even, we can tell him so. And he won't despise us for that. We're permitted to struggle, and we're permitted to wrestle, and we're permitted to groan aloud and lament in God's presence and say, God, I don't like this. What are you doing? Why have you brought this into my life? Again, don't think it's somehow spiritual to put on a veneer that says everything's, everything's fine, everything's okay, Christian life is smooth sailing. Look, it's not just like we're happily hopscotching from one delight to the next in the Christian life, and we should never pr pretend it's so. The experience of God's people in the Bible and throughout the ages of church history involves grief and suffering and hardship and struggle and wrestling and contending, lamenting, crying aloud to God. We experience evil, suffering, and pain, and it does confound us. And we can talk to our sovereign covenant God about it. He listens to those prayers. Second lesson for us to learn. God will not always provide answers for our questions surrounding suffering and evil. Instead, he will invite our faith. God will not always provide answers for our questions surrounding suffering and evil. Instead, he will invite our faith. I can give voice to my questions all day long, and indeed, to some degree, I should. But I can never demand answers from him. 
Now, God is certainly pleased to give us some answers. I can know in the midst of, of my difficult circumstance, we can know now in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic that God is indeed, as Romans 8.28 says, working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I can know from other scriptures that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will and for his own glory, the good of his people. I, I can know those. He gives us some reasons. He gives Habakkuk some answers in terms of what he's doing. But friends, we cannot demand answers from him. And there will come a point when our questions about God's providence will be left without answers. And there's a very good and fundamental reason for that that we all need to appreciate. God is not answerable to you and to me. He's not answerable to us. Moreover, I, you, we, are answerable to him. It is for him to do right, to execute his providence, to bring about his sovereign purposes, and he can do so by whatever means he chooses. Doesn't have to consult my opinion. Doesn't have to get my approval. It is for me to trust him, to follow him, and to love him. What I have to ask myself is not... Does God provide me with satisfactory answers for everything that he does in the world and in my life? I have to know the mysteries of his providence before I could ever follow him or trust him. No, that's not the question we ask ourselves. The question I fundamentally have to ask myself is, do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that God is holy? Do I believe that he will do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Genesis 18, 25. Can I entrust myself to this God? Can I love him, serve him, and follow him even when I don't have answers to all my questions? Now, listen, I'm not saying we're to have faith without reasons. Not saying that at all. I want to say actually precisely the opposite. We are to have faith even when our questions about God's providence go unanswered, precisely because God has given us reasons to trust him. So friends, if I could just peek ahead in the book of Habakkuk for a minute, this is precisely where Habakkuk goes in chapter 3. He remembers, he recalls, he reflects on God's past faithfulness to the people of Israel, particularly in the Exodus event. And he realizes God has given me ample reason to trust him. God has made promises. God has demonstrated his redemptive purposes for his people. And even though I won't get all the answers to my questions about his present mysterious and painful providences in my own life, he has given me ample reason to trust him. Oh, friends, as new covenant believers, we have all the more reason to trust God. Because the most convincing proof that God is good, God is loving, that he's merciful and compassionate, is shown to us in the giving up of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the sins of his people. God has made a way by which sinners like you and me can be forgiven, can be saved, and can be changed. And that is reason enough to trust God even when his ways, his providence, 
These dealings in my life seem mysterious and seem painful. I will trust him because I know he is good, because I know the judge of all the earth will do what is right, because he's a righteous and holy and good God. Third and final lesson. Here's where we'll end. God is willing to use dark providences in our lives to bring about his good purposes. He used dark providences in Habakkuk's life and in the history of Israel, all to bring about his good purposes. God is willing to use dark providences in our lives to bring about his good purposes. And friends, it's not like something bad happens and God then thinks, oh, here's something new, and though it's bad, I'll use it for good. No, God ordains dark providences. It's not like this is a small thing in the Bible that you can somehow avoid by not reading Habakkuk. Like this is one of the biggest themes in the Bible. It's everywhere. See, Joseph and his story of one dark providence after another, after another, after another, that God ordained, intended for his good and the deliverance of his people. Uh, see Israel's history, the repeated idolatry and sin, the demand for a monarchy, even against God's precept, even their fall into captivity, all of this God orchestrating to bring about a Messiah to the world. See Christ himself, betrayed by one of his disciples, denied and forsaken by all others, subject to a sham trial. A crown of thorns crashed upon his head, brutally whipped and beaten, crucified between two criminals. Why? So that salvation might come to the world. God ordains dark providences in our lives to advance his purposes. So friend, I just ask you, what is God doing in your fragile little life? That physical affliction that you would do anything to get rid of. That relative who just seems to bring nothing but harm and abuse and pain to you. Watching the suffering of a loved one, knowing you'd do anything to take that suffering on yourself. Perhaps being maliciously slandered and cruelly maligned without cause. Losing a parent or a child prematurely. What is God doing? He is working out his sovereign purposes as he always has. For those of us who are in Christ, we know he works for our good and for his glory. Brother, sister, he may not give you the answer, and it may be the hardest thing you ever do in your life to accept, I'm not going to get an answer from God on this. But consider, when suffering and hardship and confusion come into our lives at the hands of God's providence, and he tells us to trust him, is that not what faith is for? In the 17th century, a Puritan pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. We've promoted it in previous sermons and series we've done, uh, Burroughs was well aware of suffering and hardship. Uh, he was persecuted by the government of his day, forced to flee to the Netherlands and to leave his beloved hometown. 
He knew very well what it was like to be slandered and to be lied about and to be maliciously used in a previous church situation that he was in. He's well aware of God's mysterious providence. At the end of his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which I commend to all of you, he says this. I've updated the language a little bit. O Christian, if you have faith in the time of trial, think about it like this. This is the time that God calls for the exercise of faith. What can you do with your faith if you cannot quiet your heart in discontentment and in trial? So what do you get by being a believer, by being a Christian? What can you do by your faith? I can do this. I can in all states cast my care upon God, cast my burden upon God. I can commit my way to God in peace. Faith can do this. Therefore, when reason can go no higher, that is, I'll leave the quote for a moment, as Burroughs is trying to understand the reasons God has brought this providence into his life, this dark trial in his life, and he can't make sense of it. So he says, when reason can go no higher, let faith get on the shoulders of reason and say, I see land, though reason cannot see it. And I see good that will come out of all this evil. Exercise faith by often resigning yourself to God, by giving yourself up to God and His ways. The more you, in a believing way, surrender up yourself to God, the more quiet and peace you will have. The warmth of the fire that is a contentment that results merely from trying to find the answers will not last long. But that which comes from faith in the heart will last. When it comes from the spirit of a man or woman, that is true faith and true contentment. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do say to you that your providence is mysterious to us. The words of that song composed a couple hundred years ago are true in our experience that God moves in mysterious ways as wonders to perform. We look at the world and we look at our lives and we say to you, we, we don't understand at all times what you're doing. Thank you for furnishing us with revelation to know some of what it is that you're doing in the world, but there's still so much of your ways and of your sovereignty and of your providence that confound us. Father, we pray that you would teach us what it means, what you have said in your word and in history, that the righteous shall live by faith. Teach us what it means to live by faith, to walk by faith, to trust you, to love you, to serve you, even when we don't have answers to all of our questions. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Teach us that you are good, that you're loving, that you're in total control, that the God of all, the judge of the world, will do what is right. And in the meantime, supply us, fill us with faith. 
Help us. The difficulties many of ourselves find ourselves in have pity on our world in the context of this global pandemic. Bring an end to it soon. Work about good purposes for your people, salvation for many, and great glory for you throughout all eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.